Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Oh, I don't know what keeps happening on that TV. Now it's random. Oh, okay. Can I get the remote? We'll just go to the source, back to the other one. How's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah, good. I don't know what's going on. God, the world is so weird. Okay, so <laughs> uh, it's really amazing, alhamdulillah. Uh, I think I felt, uh, I felt a void not seeing everybody, so it's, it's, it's been nice, mashallah, to reconnect and kind of say salam to everybody. Uh, for those of you who it's your first time here, welcome. Welcome home. Welcome to Roots. Um, this is a place where no, you don't actually live here. You can't stay. We close, but <laughs> welcome spiritually home. Uh, it's a it's a it's a place that we hope can be a, a religious or spiritual home for um, many people, inshallah. Um, and for those of you who are back, welcome back. Alhamdulillah. Uh, we are doing uh, Monday nights our our heartwork series. Heartwork is our uh, month uh, weekly discussions on how to cultivate and refine the inner. Uh, the thing that matters most are foundations. Uh, the Prophet قلوبكم, that God has no interest in your image or your, um, he has no interest in your bodies or your images, right? So, but rather God, God is only going to look at your heart or your deeds. So heart work is the one time throughout the week where I try really hard to not really care about uh, what I look like on the outside, even though, mashallah, <laughs> the drip is real, right? There's a puddle here. Don't slip. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just have to because the dad jokes, they just take over. So I have to like, you know, it's just, I have to counter it. Anyways, I really try to just focus on my inside and make sure that I, I, I walk in to this space and walk out, I walk out better than I, I did when I walked in. So alhamdulillah, I'm happy that you're joining us. I wanted to quickly kind of introduce y'all to something that I'm not sure if we ever did. Roots has been around, alhamdulillah, now for a few years. And I think for a lot of people, um, we know what Roots feels like, but we don't know what Roots is. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh yeah, we go there because it's just like this place where we learn, get to meet up with friends, get to meet new people, catch up, coffee, and learn about our faith. But like, what is it? Um, and so I thought it would be beneficial to just take a minute to introduce everybody to the mission that we've had in our vision for like years now, but we just don't have it anywhere. And so this is a good way for us to kind of categorize what Roots is. Uh, Roots is a community space that aspires to facilitate uh, spiritual and social spaces. So we believe that the Prophet Sallallahu community was a spiritual community, but also a social community, meaning that they were friends, they were families, and they were all on the same path to Allah together, right? Different methods, different ways, different trajectories, different styles, but they were all trying to go on that straight path that we remind ourselves of in Surah Al-Fatiha every day. 
Um, and we really focus on three things here that we want to be like the, the things that we believe the Prophet ﷺ was. Number one, he was always welcoming. Um, he was welcoming to everybody, uh, no matter who, so long as that person was, uh, you know, sincere, right? If a person comes and tries to like mess things up, then maybe not so much. But if a person's seeking sincerely, then welcoming obviously is there. Meaningful, we want everything we do here to have some sort of meaning, whether it's 10% or 100%. Um, you know, a game night could be meaningful. Uh, meeting up with friends can be meaningful. Professional networking can be meaningful, but we want it to be meaningful. And the last is that we want people to leave feeling nurtured and nourished. And the definition of that for us is that when you leave those doors, you're happy you came, that you don't regret the time you spent here. That's what it means to feel nourished. Just like, you know, a good restaurant, like you're really happy and you can't wait to come back. Um, I actually had that the other, the other day, a few weeks back, uh, Marine got me something to eat. I flew back, I landed at like 11 PM and there was like this ice cold chicken sandwich in the fridge from this restaurant and I ate it. It was so good, cold. So I told Mehreen, I was like, I'm not hungry now, but the next time I'm hungry, we're going there. Right. And I was like already planning. <laughs> so I want roots to be that way as well. And we believe that this is the spirit of the prophetic community. We don't think we're doing anything new. We don't think we're doing anything. We're not inventing anything. This is going back to the Medinan way. This is the way the Prophet Sallallahu was. And so, um, alhamdulillah, welcome. Um, we're going to get started now back to, now that we've introduced everybody to Roots, we're going to get back to our uh, study of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu We've been going through um, a lot, actually. We've made a lot of headway in our conversation. We're about, you know, not halfway, I would say, but we're just getting to that point where the Prophet Sallallahu is about to leave, about to embark on his journey away from Mecca, his hometown, um, to be embraced now as the new leader and as the as the prophet, the you know the political and also spiritual leader of the tr- the tribes in the city of Medina. So the place that we left off last was that no don't okay was that the prophet Sallallahu lived an entire. Uh, era of his life in Mecca as a messenger of God, 13 years. He lived there as a messenger of God. That was after 40 years of him living there before the messengership was given to him. And in those 40 years, in summary, in those 40 years, he was like the poster child. Like everybody loved him. He was accepted. He was, he was celebrated. He was like the one that people would point to as being like the best of who's here. That's, that's what the prophet Sallallahu was. Then he receives this message from God via the angel Jibreel, and this message now is going to shake things up a bit. And the reason why it's going to shake things up a bit is because Allah is sending the Qur'an, and the Qur'an is reminding people that this life is not about this life, <laughs> that you've been put here for a purpose that's more than just uh, you know filling your stomachs and sleeping and making money, and that there's actually some... There's purpose. There's drive behind why you're here. And so now he's introducing these ideas to people. And again, when people are comfortable, the last thing you want to do when you just got comfortable is get up. So, you know, like, hey, can you look for the remote? I think it's under you. You're like, ah, is it even worth it, right? Can't we just watch what's on the screen right now? Because you just got comfortable. Or like, hey, you know, I remember one time, and this is a good way to test people, by the way, to see how close they are to you. I remember one time my father-in-law, I had just gotten dinner. It's a funny story, actually. So... We, had, we were standing next to each other. And I think this is like a father-in-law test. You know, like there's like those tests. If you're not married yet, just keep your eyes out, okay? There are these in-law tests, and you have to pass them. Otherwise, you will never not hear about them ever. So we were in the same line for dinner, and there was this, there was this, this item that was f- available. 
it was a buffet style. And I was like, yo, Abu, do you want some? He's like, no. I was like, are you sure? It's really good. He's like, no, no. We walk all the way across the kitchen back to the living room. And as soon as my butt hits the couch, he goes, can you go get me some of that? And I look at him. I was like, I just asked you. If you, <laughs> if you, I didn't say that in my head. I was like, I was like, yes. In my head, I was like, why? So there, there are those moments where, you know, when you get comfortable, like the last thing you want to do is disturb that comfort. And it's a lighthearted example, but it's the same with spirituality. It's the same with faith. Like sometimes we get so comfortable in our routine and the dunya that we forget that the deen is really what matters. And that's what's going to fulfill us and nourish us. And just like a person gets comfortable eating junk food, like eventually it's going to come back to get you, right? Whether it's like your health long-term. So spiritually, if I neglect my heart for a long enough time, maybe for a few weeks, months, years, I might get away with it, living in neglect. But after a certain time, I'm going to wake up and wonder what my purpose is in the first place. I'm not going to recognize myself spiritually, right? Allah Ta'ala says, Wala He says, don't be like those people who forgot God. And because they forgot God, they forgot themselves, Right? So we live a certain way, and the Quraysh were living a certain way, and they were just loving it. They were just enjoying it, and the Prophet ﷺ reminds them, no, this isn't who you are. You're deeper than this. You have more meaning than this. And so they didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like it at all. And so very few people accepted his message, and they made his life so difficult across those next 13 years. And now we're getting to the point where he has exhausted every avenue uh, in trying to find refuge for his people, trying to find solace for his people. You know, first it was just trying to exist in the city of Mecca and that wasn't going to work. Then it was trying to find other places outside of Mecca that wasn't going to work. And now he's been accepted in the Hajj. He's met a small tribe of people, a small delegation from a tribe in a city known as Yathrib, which is later to be known as Medina. And these people have accepted him. And we talked about this last time, but we're going to go over it now. They accepted him for a couple reasons. They were not the most ideal people, but they recognized positivity and goodness when they saw it. Very interesting. They had their issues. The people who accepted the Prophet ﷺ, they were not perfect people. But they still had that seed of sincerity in their heart that the people in Mecca did not have. So some of the scholars of Sirah, of history, they say that it's remarkable that these people in Medina who welcomed the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, you can come, you, we'll accept you, we'll take you as our leader, you can bring this religion there. They weren't like remarkably religious people, but they recognized goodness. And so the lesson that we take is very powerful, which is like, don't ever count yourself out just because you're not the ideal that you see yourself as being or that you want to be. Perfect is not an attainable goal, and your journey is very long. But as long as you have reverence and love for God and his messenger, then things will grow naturally, right? As long as you've set your roots, huh? right? Then, as Allah says in the Quran, Asluha thabit wa sama. Surah Ibrahim, chapter 14, it's where our name comes from. That God says that if your roots are firm, then your branches will eventually grow high. What's beautiful about firm roots is that you can't see them. So your faith, for all intents and purposes, might be unseen to the world around you, but you have to keep it nourished. Even if you know you're not where you want to be, that's okay. Just keep that faith nourished. Eventually, the sprouts will come and the fruit will be born and the, and the branches will reach toward the sky. And you'll be so proud of who you've become. But only if you kept those roots nourished, right? So these people, they recognize the Prophet ﷺ and they recognize that he was good, even though they themselves still weren't perfect. The second thing that was very powerful 
about why they accepted him was because they were in the middle of a civil war and they were experiencing the civil war and they went to the prophet and they said, hey, you have a reputation. What was his reputation, y'all? Yeah, that he was a what? Yeah, he was a very good. Oh, mashallah, right? It was like perfectly silent for you to do that. It was like alley-oop, right? He was a peacemaker. He was somebody who made peace. Like he was recognized as a person who made peace. And so they told him like, hey, we've been having this, this civil war. You're known to be like a really, really popular uh, peacemaker. If you can unite us, we will definitely accept you. Like we've already pre-accepted you. But if you can come and take care of all this drama that we have going on, like then that will prove our point to everybody. And subhanAllah, the second lesson here, which is very powerful, is that humanity wants to see the evidence of religion in us. Like not in theory, right? Oh, you know, Islam's great. Why? Because it is. Yeah, we know that. But people want to feel why Islam is beautiful. Like people want to feel that. There was this video that I saw on the internet. Uh, this is That's going to be like the most commented phrase in all tafsirs and like in roots ever this is a video i saw on the internet uh i think it was oprah or somebody was talking to a lady who was like in the philippines you guys know what i'm talking about okay oprah was talking to somebody which is like what oprah does and so she was talking to somebody and this lady was like i don't know like probably like she reminded me of like my grandma from my dad's side just like this random old like caucasian lady and she was telling oprah about this time she spent i think in indonesia I believe, yeah. And she was talking about that. She was on this like remote island. You know, like these super wealthy people that do like, crazy vacations. It's, like borderline dangerous. You know, normally we're like, oh, we're going to go to Austin for the weekend. Or like, we're going to go here. Like, you know, safe hotel, safe FDA approved restaurant, safe. Super wealthy people are like, I'm going to go jump out of a plane. I'm going to go stay in an island where nobody but like monkeys live. Like, I'm going to do. So she says she went to this like crazy uninhabited island. And again, everyone's like, wow, that's so cool. I'm like, that's strange. That's scary to me. Anyway, she goes, and everyone's living like in mosquito nets, right, disconnecting. And she said that she got really sick, and she was unable to communicate with people on the island. And essentially what happened was there was a Muslim lady, uh, because Indonesia is the highest per capita Muslim population. There was a Muslim lady who couldn't communicate with her but saw like what a dire strait she was in. And kind of just noticed that she was not well and took it upon herself over the next few days to like cook for her and nurse her back to health. And the reason why this video was popular on Muslim internet, which is a thing, right? (laughs) The reason why it was popular is because this lady said this line that was super powerful. She said, she is the face of Islam for me. So she was like, amongst all this political, you know, whatever, circus, where everyone's labeling that this is Islam, this is Islam. She's like, I will never forget. And she even said, like, I didn't even know her name. But that's who Islam is. Like, imagine, like, that person, imagine, like, that woman, that woman who cooked for the woman who was ill, the, the Indonesian woman, the Muslim woman. Imagine her meeting the Prophet Sosam on the Day of Judgment. And imagine the Prophet Sosam telling her, like, you've changed not only this one woman, but now she's telling your story to millions of people. All because of what? Because you had ikhlas and you had sincerity in your heart. That's how Allah allows sincerity to blossom like a beautiful flower. It's just something small. So they saw this and they said, the Prophet saw something, they said, you, you've, you're known to solve problems. If you want to prove that this whole religion thing that you're preaching is real, let's see it work. Let's see it work, right? It's a lot of pressure. But we have conviction that what Allah has taught us can solve problems. We have conviction in that. So he said, sure. 
He said, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can, right? We'll, we'll, we'll obviously try to bring everybody together, these warring tribes. And so they accepted the Prophet and that was the first year. And the next year they came back with even more people. And this picture that's um, in the background, Bayat al-Aqaba, this picture is actually, um, we took this picture when we went to the masjid that's in Aqaba. So it's kind of a, an interesting concept, but basically wherever something historically happened in Islamic history, in certain parts of the world, they would build what's called like a maqam or like a station there, like a building. It doesn't mean that that building was there, but what it means is like this building signifies that something happened here. So this is called Masjid Aqaba. Now, no one prays there. You can see it's like, it's like four janamas, bichada. Like there's like no, like, <laughs> you know, there's like, but, but, but like, it's just, it's built as a sign of, 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 you know, reverence to that moment. And so the Prophet ﷺ, that second year during Hajj, because Hajj was still practiced pre-Islam, right? There was just idols there, but the practice of Hajj has existed since Ibrahim till now. So in that sort of spiritual downtime, it was still happening. They had went and they had visited the Prophet ﷺ with even more people. And they had accepted the Prophet ﷺ. And he gave them a very, um, he gave them a very, uh, foundational message to take home to their people, which was essentially worship Allah alone. Take me as your messenger. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't hurt others. Right? Honor the orphan. Honor the poor. And these are the things that he taught them. And if you talk about like what does Islam mean? If somebody asks you like what does it mean to be a Muslim? So many different options are flowing in my mind. It's like the Matrix. You like start to see all these different pathways. Like what does it mean to be Muslim? I'm like, uh, you know. I got to ask everywhere if it's halal, like, you know, the wine doesn't cook out totally, you know, like all these things like go in my head, like cheese enzymes and like random things like Cheetos were haram for a bit. I don't know. You know, like all these things are just going through my head. Like what does it mean Muslim? I'm like Ramadan, you know, it's just, it's hungry all day. But look at what the prophet saw him. Look at how he introduced Islam. Look at how he introduced it. I remember my dad, when my dad accepted Islam, I asked him, I was like, Dad, what was one of the first things they told you? And I remember he told me this. He's like, they told me to change my name, right, from Jim, <laughs> James. Uh, you know, I was like, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you're close, right? So Jim, and then they, they told him, like, you can't eat this anymore. You can't eat this anymore. You can't eat this anymore. I was like, subhanAllah, man, no one told you to love Allah? No one told you to read the life of the Prophet him. I've seen people in here like nodding your heads. This was also a lot of our experience too. Like the focus was something so esoteric. I'm not saying that those rules and rituals don't matter. They do. But all structures have to be built before the ornaments can be attached, right? Like we're trying to like build bedrooms and bathrooms before there's a foundation. It's crazy. So the Prophet he understands that and he gives this tribe the foundation. And then he sends with them a teacher. He sends with them one of his most beloved, Musab ibn Umair. Musa ibn Umair was his, their imam. He was 17 at the time. Could you imagine being a 17-year-old teaching people about Islam? So he went and he taught them and he was their imam. And he was somebody who as soon as he got there, he started getting to work teaching people the Quran, teaching people about what the Quran was, was, was trying to tell them, and really started to transform the hearts of people that were there with him. So the last lesson we'll take from this moment before we move on is that you can't move forward on this path without having some sort of teacher, some sort of guide. It doesn't have to be somebody well-known. It doesn't have to be somebody that people have heard. It could be your parents. It could be your, you know, it could be a chacha at the, at the masjid who just, but somebody who has attachment to religion, to knowledge that you click with, you need to have a guide on this path. 
you need to have a guide on this path, right? So this, that's why the Prophet didn't just send them off and say, good luck. He said, I'm going to send somebody with you to make sure that you're going the right direction, inshallah. Now, Medina is very interesting geographically. It's a beautiful city, but subhanAllah, when you look at it from a geographical perspective, from a geological perspective, you see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually prepared Medina for the Prophet before the Prophet ever got there. Medina is, interestingly enough, in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, in the Arabian Peninsula, I should say, there are volcanoes. Anyone know that? There's volcanoes there. So there's like, around Medina, there's like 17 volcanoes. Historic. They're, they're not active anymore. Everyone's like canceling all more trips. Right? Okay. There's like 15 or 17. Yeah? How can there be volcanoes in a desert? I don't know. We'll ask Allah on the Day of Judgment. I have no clue. Yeah, yeah. I'm an English major. <laughs> I just look at the earth and I'm like, hey. Like, yeah. Maybe at one point. Actually, there's theories about like historically over time, climate shifted and there was like seasons that, you know. God knows best. I don't know. We'll look into it together. Uh, right? I just know. I was just there too. We toured them, and actually, what, there's there's evidence of it, right? So the volcanoes are there. They're dormant. They're not. They're not uh, active. But there's the reason why that it's important is because uh, lava, rock that was formed over centuries of lava formation, rock is like impossible to traverse, especially with animals. So it's. Um, you know like when people put like landscape their homes and they use like those nice smooth pebbles and they use the jagged rocks i remember as a kid like you just didn't want to walk on the jagged ones because it's really painful okay that's what that lava formation is so interestingly medina is surrounded by this volcanic rock and there's only one entry and then the other side of it is surrounded by a mountain right it's surrounded by Uhud, the mountain of Uhud. so there's really only one entry point into medina there's really only one entry point into Medina, right, from the southeast. So it's very interesting, subhanAllah, that this city was basically protected by natural formation, mountains and vol- volcanoes, by God Almighty. And this becomes really important when we go further in the Sira, we learn about, like, battles that happened and, um, you know, sneak attacks and, like, sab- all this stuff that was happening. And all this stuff served as a natural defense, all this stuff served as a natural defense. So the city of the Prophet was protected uh, from day one, from day one. And so this place was chosen by God. And now what's happening is the Prophet has been given permission by Allah to start to dispatch people two by two, three by three out to Medina. Okay, And we talked about this, I think, a little bit last time, but just to kind of dial back. Why couldn't all the Muslims just leave Mecca at once? Why couldn't they all just dip? Like all 100 or so of them, 80, 85 plus at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. In theory, they could, but Quraysh wouldn't let them. The same people that hated them wouldn't let them leave because they were really big on uh, reputation, right? Like they were really big on what everyone's going to think about them. They were huge on it and they were concerned that people were like going to start judging them like, oh man, you just lost like 80 of your tribes people left? Like how, what horrible hosts you are, okay? The other thing is that in, in this era, especially where you know this kind of tribal warfare was common, tribes leave and they come back stronger, right? Tribes leave and they come back stronger. So all the bullying, right, that you did, that kid went to the gym and got jacked, right? <laughs> and now he's come back and you're like, oh snap, I'm so sorry, right? Like... Please forgive me. And, and that's basically Fatimekka. That's essentially the conquest of Mecca. Like, we'll talk about that. 
Tribes leave, they get stronger, they come back. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he came back, he said, لا تفريب عليكم اليوم. There's no blame on you today. He accepted them. The same people who caused him so much pain, he accepted them, subhanAllah. So there was a couple of reasons why they didn't want to let them go. It was almost like, we don't want you to he- be here, but if you're going to be, we'd rather you be in our control, under our sight, and like torture you essentially to, to, to take you out. So because of this, the Prophet ﷺ had to dispatch people two by two, three by three. It had to be sort of covert. And the Prophet ﷺ beautifully did not put himself in the first group or the second group. He didn't say like, okay, you know, I'm going to go. I'll see you guys there. You know, follow the trail. I'll, I'll meet you guys there. He, Salam, actually sent everybody first. But there were some interesting stories of sacrifice that happened when the Prophet ﷺ was sending people. It wasn't just so easy where he would like pick them and say, okay, you go, you go. When they, when they were told to go, each person had to go through their own moment of departure and some were a lot more difficult than others. There are two stories that we'll talk about, inshallah, that are names that you have to remember. These are names that you just have to remember. One of them, her name is Um Salama. Anyone here named Um Salama? Anybody? No? It's an interesting name because it means mother of Salama. So unless you're like foreshadowing, you're going to have a daughter named Salama. But like, you know, I've known some people named Um Salama. And, and why? Because, or like Abu Bakr, like you don't have a kid named Bakr. But... It's, it's obviously connected to the story of somebody who's so meaningful and so powerful. And so Umm Salama radiallahu anha was actually, she ends up being one of the wives of the Prophet later after her husband passes away. She and her husband, they accepted the Prophet and they had made their mind to leave for Medina. The Prophet had given them permission to leave for Medina. But the tribes that each of them belonged to, it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet, right? Capulets and Montagues, like they were from different families, and first time ever, Sirah has been compared to Roman Juliet. Alhamdulillah, right? <laughs> These families, they didn't want to allow them to leave together. It was like it was almost like a, an ego battle. It was almost like you know a, a one up. Okay, well we're not going to let them leave. We're not we're not going to let you leave. And so they're trying to not only battle their the Quraysh, the tribe themselves, but they're also trying to battle their families. And then they say, okay, you know what? If they want to leave, let them leave. If your husband wants to leave, let him leave. If your, and the other side says, if your wife wants to leave, let her leave. We're not going to hold them, but we're going to hold you back. Now, the really sad moment is that there's a child involved in this. There's a child that's involved in this. And what ends up happening, subhanAllah, is Abu Salama is able to convince his family to let him leave. But Umm Salama is not able to convince her family. And they end up keeping them, keeping her. And the child and Abu Salama end up leaving. And in her words, this narration is actually narrated by her. She said they snatched the camel. Basically, they were all trying to leave together and sneak out. And they snatched me off of the camel and they took me with them. They said, by God, you have torn her from our brother, but we will not let our son go with her. Meaning that they're witnessing now Um Salama being torn, the guy's family. And they're like, you know what? You can take her, but we're going to keep the kid. And we're going to dip and we're gone. And I just want you to imagine, subhanAllah, like the heart being torn out of her her chest. Like she's witnessing her son and her husband being torn. Like when I came back from Umrah, I had to, I I got my, alhamdulillah, the American government wants to make sure I'm really safe (laughs) and really secure, right? I'm valuable, okay? At least that's what they tell me. And I I saw, um, it happens all the time, and I'm working on it with some lawyers, but I thought to myself, you know what? Surely these people have cardiovascular organs inside of their chest known as hearts that, 
maybe I can invoke some empathy or sympathy with if I bring my son with me. Because normally it's like two, three hours of questioning, stupid questions that make no sense. So I brought Musa with me. And we had just gotten off a 13-hour plane ride. He's really excited to be home. And Mehreen and I are in the line together. And then Mehreen's slip and Musa's slip and Iman's slip all show their face normally. And then mine has a big old X over it, which is normal for me. So then I go and the guy's like, this line. And it's just a bunch of brown people, <laughs> a bunch of Muslims, <laughs> a bunch of kufis and hijabs. And so we're just like – and I'm holding Musa. And Musa's you – know, kids he's, – he's almost three. Kids are really perceptive. They understand way more than we give them credit for. So the first thing he says, he goes, where's mama? He's like, where's mama? I go, mama's over there. He goes, why? Right? He doesn't know how to say, like, why is she in a different line than us? But he just goes, why is she over there and why are we here? I said, okay, you know, mama's over there. Luckily, she was around some women. So I said, oh, look, the ladies. <laughs> right? He's like, we're not in Saudi anymore, dad. <laughs> I was like, the ladies are over there and we're over here. And subhanAllah. I just, I just distracted him. I was like, dinosaur. He's like, where? And so I got him distracted a little bit. I go to the, the, the dude who's supposed to just stamp your passport and say, welcome home. And he starts asking me, you know, like, you know, I don't know. He's like, you went to Turkey this year. What were you doing there? I was like, Turkish delights and donor kebab. Like, I don't know what. And he's like, you didn't go to Syria? I was like, no. Um, all these questions. And then he scanned my passport and he flips on the switch. And the switch is like, you know, like escort, please, escort. And Musa, you see his eyes are just like, they're almost like dilating because he just, he's understanding what's happening. And subhanAllah, at that moment, at that very moment, Mehreen made it through and she was just strolling on in with my giant daughter, right? Like <laughs> my giant 10-month-old daughter. And she's just like walking on it and he looks and he sees. And I said, it's okay, Bob. I said, it's boy's time. That's what we say when it's just he and I. It's boy's time, right? We're going to hang out. And they take us into this room. And I can, I can tell he's trying to have a good time, but I can tell that there's fear in his voice. And then subhanAllah, dude, it crushed me. It crushed me. We're sitting down and they say, no, in this room, you're not allowed to have your phones out. And I mean, even if it's like, even your watch, all this stuff, they're like, put it away, put it away. So I was just texting Mehreen really quickly before I got in the room. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to be out in a, in a few, just like FYI, they took me in again. And they're like, sir, put your phone away. And I was like, relax, I got my kid with me. Right, because at this point, like I've been to, I've been to Jerusalem. I've dealt with IDF people, rifles in my face. Like I'm not scared of you, rent a cop. So like you know, like <laughs> the guy's like, put your phone away. I was like, relax. So, so those the IDF dudes, like they'll just they'll literally just cap you and like they'll put a knife on the floor and like it's done. Right. So, uh, so I'm like, relax. I gotta text my wife. Like I have my son with me, and he just starts crying. And my son is a big boy. He's a Murphy. Right. And he crumbles into me. That's the only word I knew, I knew how to, the only way I could describe it was he, it felt like somebody crumbling. He literally just folded into me out of fear, just literally dug his eyes into my shoulder and just starts crying. Where's mama? Where's mama? Where's mama? And I'm there with him. But he, like, the separation is so interesting, subhanAllah. Even though she's not more than 50 feet away from me on the other side of a wall, and I'm telling him that, we're going to see mama soon. Don't worry, we're going to see mama soon. Here, look. Dinosaurs, right? Like, just keeps crying. So now transfer that to Um Salama. And I know that I'm going to, inshallah, like, I, I know that I'm going to end up seeing my wife again. I know that we're going to be, re, I know that I have a flight to catch, right? But she didn't know. For her, this was it. This was it. 
And why on earth would somebody put themselves through this? What was worth it to them? Like, again, and she continues the narration. She says, a scuffle started between them until Salama, the child, had their arm dislocated. Like they were pulling the child back and forth, back and forth until the shoulder popped. And finally, because she witnessed her child in pain, she let go. Right? Like, I'm not, look, I'd rather let him go than uh, let them have, uh, you know, let my child be in pain. And then the, she said that, thus, all three of us, myself, my husband, and my son were separated. She said, I would go out every morning, subhanAllah. She would walk out to the outskirts called Abta. And she said, I would weep every morning and every night for one year. Like to the point where like the eyes went dry. Right? But notice one thing, subhanAllah. This pain. This is like literally a memoir of heartbreak. But she still never gave up on what caused it. The reason why I talk about these stories so much is because like there's no doubt that following this path of the Prophet is not easy. There's no doubt. The choices that we have to make, the things that we go through, I don't doubt for a second. When people come and say things like, man, it's tough. You know, I remember growing up and saying that to certain people and they're like, man up, right? And yeah, at some degree you read stories like this and you're like, man up, you know? But subhanAllah, when I read stories like this, it makes me feel like I'm in good company. It makes me feel like, you know what, like this, this struggle that I'm going through, I'm, I don't have to give up my kid, but, you know, me putting my foot in the sink at work or me having to take days off for aid or me having to stand up for something about my identity or me having to proudly represent my faith or my Islam at the cost of something that might be difficult for me or might be uncomfortable, it's got to be worth it. If Umm Salama thought it was worth it, then it's got to be worth it. And so then after a year, she said that there was one of the cousins of the tribe of Al-Mughira. He came to her and his heart felt sympathetic. And he said to her, you know, what can I do to help? And then he said, she said, I want to be reunited with my family. He said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go take your case on as my own. He became like her lawyer, her attorney. And he went, he argued for her, and he finally got permission from her family for her to leave. Not only that, but he took her all the way to Medina. He took her all the way there, and he reunited her with her family. But it only happened after a year, after a year of pain. Another lesson from the subhanAllah. If she was so beloved to Allah, why didn't Allah just give her relief right there? Surely she was praying every night. Surely she was begging Allah all year long. It's interesting. You know, Imam Ghazali talks about this. He says, when you make dua, you're praying to Allah, but you're also holding Allah to a timeline that's your own, not his. And you're telling Allah, like, oh, Allah, give me this. Oh, Allah, grant me this. And then after a few days, you become fr- frustrated. No, naturally, it's human, right? I'm asking, I'm requesting, I become frustrated. Look at the stories of these people and what they had to go through before Allah gave them relief. And Imam Ghazali says, sometimes... Sometimes Allah will withhold your answer to see how, how real you are, how sincere you are. If you're sincere about something, you're going to keep doing it over and over and over and over again. And so Allah Ta'ala reunited her with her family after that long, long year. The next story is a person of the name Suhaib. Suhaib was a Meccan who actually wasn't from Mecca. He was a Byzantine. He was from Rome, Suhaib al-Rumi. And he was somebody who made a big name for himself in Mecca because he was incredibly wealthy. And so when he accepted the Prophet ﷺ, what ended up happening with his story was that when people found out, they started to sort of converge on him and challenge him and chastise him. 
And when it was his turn to make Hydra, he was getting ready to leave. And as he was walking out, some people tried to jump him, basically. Now, so he was kind of a G. Okay, you know what he did? He was ready. So they were they were getting ready to jump him as he was trying to leave. And he pulls out his bow and arrow. And he's like, and he had a really good reputation for being a great archer. He's like, y'all know who I am. And he goes, the first one who moves, I'm going to put an arrow in your eyes. Literally, he's just like, you know those movies where the guy's got like guns like this? That's him. And so they were like, okay. Right? All of them are like like covering their eyes because they know like the first one that moves towards them, they're done. So then what they say to him is, again, they're like trying to guilt him. They're like, you know what? It's unfair. You came to our city and now you're leaving, but you made all of your wealth here. Does that, is, that, is there a compelling argument there? No. No. Those of you who nodded, no. Wrong. Right? <laughs> eh, right? No such thing as a wrong answer. Yes, there is. That was a wrong answer. Okay? So there's no compelling argument there. I'm waiting. She's okay? No, I just want to make sure she's okay. She's good. Okay, alhamdulillah. I have a kid that age. It's like the same. As soon as mama holds, it's like melt. Um, so he, they were like, you made all your money here. That's not fair. You can't just make your money here and leave. And even though their argument made no sense, and even though he was the one with the, the bow and arrow in his hand, and he's like, it makes no sense, and I'm the one with the arrow pointed at your face. So it definitely doesn't make sense. You know what he said? He says, subhanAllah, they said, they said, how can you, you came to us as a beggar, you grew rich amongst us, and now you want to go away safely with your wealth? They said, how can you do this? By God, we're never going to let this happen. And he said, would you allow me to go if I gave everything to you? Would you allow me to go if I gave everything to you? And they said, yes. Because again, these are people who, no principle. It's all cash, right? It's just whatever it takes. He goes, I give you all of it. He drops the keys. Let me go. These are yours. I give you all of it. When he arrived in Medina, and the Prophet Sallallahu later arrived in Medina, obviously everyone got to sit with the Prophet Sallallahu And what they do? They told him stories about their journey. He said, Ya Rasulullah, this is what happened to me. Ya Rasulullah, this is what happened to me. So Suhaib got a private meeting with the Prophet Sallallahu He said, Suhaib, it's good to see you. You made it. Yeah, yeah, I made it, right? It's like when you see someone on the other side of a long trip. You made it. Yeah, I made it. How did it go? It went well. He said, alhamdulillah, everything okay? He said, yeah, everything went okay. And he didn't want to bring up, like, you know, what he did. But then he says, Ya Rasulullah, something interesting happened. He said, what? He goes, when I was leaving, they threatened me, and I said to them that if I gave you all of my wealth, and he was known to be a wealthy man. He said, if I gave you all my wealth, would you let me leave? And they said, yes. And he goes, so I gave it to them, Ya Rasulullah. I gave it to them for you. Because I would rather be in your presence than have all my wealth and be away from you. The Prophet responded by saying, you made a good prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T, <laughs> right? He goes, you made profit, right? Bars, mashallah, because he's a prophet. Okay, anyways, no one gets it. It's like translation bars, okay? He goes, Suhaib has made a profit. Suhaib, he made a deal. Like, he made a deal. Like, wow, he won. Like, that's he nailed it. Like, mashallah, right? I, I, I don't know what I would give up in that scenario if I were honest with myself. I don't, you know, sometimes I even struggle giving up sleep for fajr. You know, sometimes we struggle giving up coffee for fasting or money for, for zakat or, you know, saving for hajj because we just, it's tough. And then you look at people like this and you're like, they were so willing. And at the same time, you ask yourself, what made that generation so special? Why did Allah describe them as being so special and so powerful? And the answer 
y'all, is right in front of us here, is their ability to sacrifice. Their ability to sacrifice. One of my teachers, Sheikh Hassan, he actually told me very powerfully one time, he said, if you want to know how much you love Allah, ask yourself what you've given up for him. There's, I'm writing a small little book, and one of the chapters that I'm writing in it is talking about this concept of not everything you do for Allah is easy, but it's always worth it. And it's, the reason why it's worth it is not even because of the reward you're going to get, but because you walk out with a certificate of what? Of your love is true. Your love is true. You know, it's like my wife loves Bollywood. <laughs> like movies, music, all of it. Okay? She has time. <laughs> no, she doesn't really. But that stuff is takes forever. All right? MashaAllah. She loves it. I'll tell you something. I do not like it. I do not like it. I don't get it. I don't like it. The stories are all the same. <laughs> right? Guy meets girl. Girl meets guy. Guy is like a journalist. Girl's family set her up with a doctor. It's not working out. She doesn't like him. Doctor doesn't get it. He's clueless. Right? She likes journalists. She went to journalism school. You know, it's like it was random stuff. He's writing an article on her father's business. Like something crazy, right? Like just interwoven everywhere. And I'm just like, I don't have four hours for this. You know, so. But my wife really likes it. And she enjoys it. And her sister likes it too. Like it's kind of like I'm surrounded, right? My cat does too. So it's like I'm really surrounded. And subhanAllah, like. I find myself, and this isn't, I'm not pumping myself up as a husband. I have a lot of work to do. But I find myself, whenever anyone brings up Bollywood, I don't like it. Let me remind you. But I find myself, like, listening. And I listen so that I can hear, like, what is popping in Bollywood so that I can go home and tell my wife, like, hey, there's a new thing out, I think, (laughs) that somebody was talking about. Have you seen it? And she's like... No, how do you know about that? And I'm like, but that's what you do. When you care for somebody, that's what you do. Like, I'm sure for her, she's like, hey, like coffee, there's something coffee somewhere. And I'm like, really? <laughs> right? She likes drinking it, but she's not into like the science of it. I'm like explaining to her like, oh my God, this extraction was 27 seconds. It was so good. And she's just like, yeah, it was great. Right? Like, and subhanAllah, like when you love somebody, you take an interest in something that you had no interest in. You go against something that's even uncomfortable for you because you're seeking the comfort of loving them. You're not seeking the comfort of what you're doing. You're seeking something bigger than that. So now, apply that example to Allah. Fasting is not fun, but it is when you do it for Allah. Intermittent fasting is not fun, but when you do it for Allah, it is. Walking like, how many of y'all are like, what do you enjoy doing? I like, I like walking, right? But walk during Hajj. Apply that meaning to your walking. Being tired and exhausted in Muzdalifa, dude, in Muzdalifa. Muzdalifa is the day after Arafah for Hajj. It's the world's largest sleepover. All the Hajjaj are sleeping out under the stars on nothing but like rocks and sheets. It's like, it's really rustic, super rustic. Like, hipsters would love it, right? Like, <laughs> there's just hujaj and dudes in jean shorts, right? Like, so, no one got that except for Denton. Only Denton people got that. So, Muzdalifa, like, is the, is the recipe of discomfort. If you were to, like, market that, it would not even get a star. Zero stars. 
But subhanAllah, everyone who spends the night there, because you have to spend a portion of the night there, everyone wakes up and you know what they say? That was the best sleep I've ever gotten. Even if it was like half an hour. They wake up and they're like, that was so peaceful. There's this palpable sakina that you can feel because the malaika are looking at you with jealousy. Because you don't have to be there, but you're there because you love Allah. It's ins- It's crazy. When you do something for Allah and you find pleasure in what otherwise would be painful or you find blessing in what otherwise would be burden. And it doesn't mean that it's easy. Waking up for Fajr is hard. In these cold months, it's really hard. You know when you have to make wudu and the first half of your wudu is freezing? The first half is hypothermia. The second half is scalding because you're trying to like <laughs> trying to like compensate. And you're just like, man, faith is so painful. What am I doing? You could have just waited for 30 seconds until it balanced, but no. You only have a minute left, right? <laughs> so it's like <laughs> you don't have time. Like you just have to do it, right? Some you consider tayammum on the way. You're like, let me just smack the wall a couple times. And the whole pro, like the whole process, the whole process is painful. But you know what? The minute you give those two salams, you're like, where am I? This isn't earth anymore. Like I'm closer now to Allah. You've done something good. You give money, like you earn money and you give it away in charity. And the whole process, you're like, no, 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 no. And you give it, you're like, what have I done? That's amazing, you know? That's what sacrifice does. And you do not feel faith except on the opposite side of that mountain. Iman is only felt on the opposite side. You can't even see it. It doesn't make sense. The mountain is what you have to sacrifice. You're looking at it, you're like, I can't see the benefit of it. And everyone who's done it is on top. They're like, you have no idea what you're missing out on. And you're like, I don't know. You just have to trust a long climb. You get to the top. You do exactly what you swore you'd never be able to do. And you look down and you say, this was amazing. This was worth it every single time. Then you know what happens? The next mountain you see, you don't doubt it. You climb it right away faster than you did before. Your faith has gotten stronger. And now you trust Allah more. And the benefit is worth it every single time. These sacrifice stories are important to go over. I've already went over time, so we're not going to be able to talk about this until next week, inshallah, which is how the Prophet ﷺ made his hijrah. So he sent everybody ahead. There were stories of sacrifice, of difficulty. And then now we have the moment where the Prophet ﷺ is trying to leave, but they don't let him go easy. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to grant us all the lessons that we've taken today. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to give our hearts strength. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to untangle any difficulties that we have in our life and to give us clarity in our confusion, and to give us solutions to all of our problems. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us cures for all of our diseases and sicknesses, whether they are physical or spiritual. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us relief from these ailments. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to put barakah and blessing in our time, and in our wealth, and in our relationships. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us courageous enough to confront ourselves and our wrongs. And we ask Allah to never allow us to be going the wrong way on the straight path. Amin ya rabbal alameen. Barakallahu alaykum everybody. It's good to be back. Love you all for the sake of Allah. I'll see you guys next week inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.